Today's reading comes from the NIV version of the Holy Bible. Uh, it's Matthew 26, 31 to 35. In this, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. This is the word of our Lord. God is all-knowing. He has complete and perfect knowledge of all things past, present, future. The theological word for this aspect of God's nature is omniscient. In the beginning, God created the world and everything in it, including knowledge. It really is something to consider that God encompasses all knowledge of the entire universe for all time. Psalm 147, verses 4 to 5, tell us he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Just imagine. God not only knows how many stars are in the universe, but knows each one of them by name. An Australian study a few years ago put the number of stars we can see at 70,000 million, 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 or the number 70 followed by 22 zeros. Apparently, that means there are more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on all the beaches and deserts of the world. It's incredible. What an incredible picture of this omniscient God whom we worship. Psalm 139 personifies or personalises the omniscience of God by speaking about his intimate knowledge of who we are and how each of our days will unfold. In particular, verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. A similar sentiment is expressed in Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We are known by God. Nothing we have ever done or will ever do surprises him. In Matthew 26, we see the omniscience of God at play in Jesus as he predicts the betrayal, 
by Judas and the uh, desertion of his closest followers and the threefold denial of Peter. Matthew 26, which we only heard a small portion of this morning, is a very long chapter and it recounts several events in the lead-up to Jesus' torture and crucifixion. And the NIV, which we heard from, breaks up this lengthy chapter into these particular scenes. The first five verses are given to the plot against Jesus. Then we have the scene of Jesus being anointed at Bethany by the woman who smashes open the the bottle of perfume and anoints Jesus. Uh, Verses 14 to 16 are given to the scene where uh, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Verses 17 to 30 are the famous Last Supper, which each four of the Gospels uh, explore and explain. And then in verses 31 to 35, we have Jesus predicting Peter's denial. 36 to 46 is the scene in Gethsemane. Then Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin in 57 to 68. And in 69 to 75, Peter disowns Jesus. As you can see... Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial sits right in the centre of chapter 26. In the coming weeks, we will focus our attention on Gethsemane and then on Peter's actual denial of Christ. But today, we're focusing our attention on Jesus' prediction of uh, Peter's denial and in particular, Peter's response to that prediction. For the last six months, Jesus has been quite upfront about the fact that he would suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, but that on the third day, he would be raised to life. Understandably, the disciples didn't want to dwell on this information. It confused them, and it appears they put it in the too-hard basket. However, Jesus was no longer speaking about some event kind of out there. It was now this very night. There was an immediacy to this prediction like never before. And what a roller coaster night this was. In fact, I'm almost certain it would have been one of the, if not the, most memorable night in all of those disciples' lives. All four Gospels record the Last Supper, where the Passover meal was shared in the upper room. This is where Jesus connected the bread and the wine to his broken body and his spilt blood, instituting what is now known as the Eucharist, Communion, or the Lord's Supper. John uniquely devotes five chapters of his Gospel to what is known as the Upper Room Discourse, Out of 21 chapters covering Jesus' life and ministry, John devotes almost an entire quarter of his gospel to this one scene. This lengthy discourse which began in the upper room and continued as they journeyed to the Mount of Olives is incredibly significant. In the upper room discourse, we are invited to join with the disciples And hear Jesus share the most important things on his heart before he went to the cross. 
According to Matthew 26.30, after singing a hymn, they left the upper room and went to the Mount of Olives. And Luke tells us that the Mount of Olives was a place that Jesus and his disciples frequented regularly to be able to draw aside and pray. After all that the disciples had witnessed and experienced in the upper room, including, of course, what we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, the washing of the feet, I imagine the disciples were feeling very close to Jesus and acutely resolved to stand by him and to follow him, whatever may come. The heavy burden at this point that Jesus was carrying would be impossible for us to imagine or understand. The imminent betrayal and denial of his followers, his impending torture and crucifixion, In Jesus' most trying hours, he needed the support of his closest friends, but he knew that he wasn't going to have it. It must have come as a surprise to the disciples to hear Jesus say, this very night you will fall away on account of me. In their heart of hearts, I'm sure they didn't dream of being disloyal. But, we, but as we will soon see, frightening circumstances can oftentimes have an adverse effect on our resolve. To substantiate his claim, Jesus quotes a passage from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now in this instance, Jesus himself will be struck. And his band of followers, his disciples, will be scattered. However, just as the striking of the shepherd will lead to the scattering of the flock, so his restoration will lead to their regrouping. Jesus, the good shepherd, will go before them to Galilee. This is where his ministry began. This is where he initially called them and set them apart as his disciples. So according to Jesus and the prophetic foretelling, all of the disciples will fall away. However, they are all adamant, following Peter's lead, that they would not disown their Lord. The fact that Jesus makes such a prediction indicates that he is in total control of the whole situation. Nothing will come as a surprise to him. He knows what will happen And he knows that there are prophecies that must be fulfilled. And whilst this wasn't very reassuring to the disciples at the time, the author wants his readers, you and I, to see that even though the imminent events will be most distressing, Jesus remains in control. And that whatever transpires, God will be able to use it in his grand scheme of restoration and reconciliation. The author here, I believe, is clearly highlighting the trustworthiness of Jesus and the untrustworthiness of people. You know, we often have the best of intentions. 
But it's easy to have good intentions, isn't it? It's a lot harder to follow through when push comes to shove. And we see that being acted out right here in Matthew 26. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And that is one very good reason to trust him. Even though Jesus had foreknowledge of the disciples disowning him and Peter denying him three times, he didn't try and change their minds. (laughs) He didn't threaten them or make them feel guilty. The text indicates he was rather matter-of-fact about this. This will happen, but after I've risen, I'll meet you in Galilee. How reassuring. (laughs) My immediate response to this is how incredibly gracious Jesus is. There is no hint of judgment or condemnation towards Peter or the other disciples. He doesn't expect them to be something they are not. He understands they are human, that they will err in the face of terror and fear, but that this doesn't have to define them. In fact, he knows that this very incident will, in the end, resolve their faith and resolve their commitment to following him. He always sees the big picture. And sometimes with our short-sightedness, we can't see or understand what value this particular trial might have. But God can. If we extract ourselves from this moment in history and imagine sharing a meal or a cup of coffee with Jesus today where he made predictions about our shortcomings, our future failings, possible ways that we will disown him, I wonder what they might be. I wonder if, like the disciples and Peter, we would want to refute him and defend ourselves. There is nothing that Peter was going to do that would surprise Jesus Jesus already knew about it. Jesus doesn't condemn Peter and neither does he express disappointment or shame in him. He doesn't do that before Peter denies him and I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but post-Easter, he doesn't express disappointment or shame in him then either. Look forward to talking about that. This is such a comforting thought. Jesus knows everything. He knows our past, our present, and our future. Everything that we are already going, everything that we are going to do is known by him, and that doesn't change his love for us. What a wonderful, comforting thought. I believe that is the author's intent. It's what he wants to express here. For us to see that Jesus has foreknowledge, he knows what's going to happen, but it doesn't alter his love for his disciples. This was the second time that Jesus had made a prediction about Peter. The first time was about Peter's future leadership role in the church. Jesus renamed him the Rock. 
describing the kind of person that he was becoming and signifying the legacy that he would lead. This second prediction about forsaking and denying Jesus certainly wasn't one of Peter's finest moments. And yet, what a thought that Jesus can use someone who denies him three times to build his church. Clearly, the issue is not about failing or sinning. We all do that, some more dramatically than others. But unlike us, God doesn't differentiate sin. Sin is sin, and all sin separates us from God. Therefore, we all stand equally before him, and we are not saved because of our actions or goodness. We are saved because of Jesus' actions and goodness. The issue is ownership and repentance. Peter will fail, but as we will come to see, he took personal ownership for his failure and had a repentant heart. God can always work with humility and genuine remorse, but he can't do a lot with arrogance and pride. As usual, when Jesus makes this claim, this statement, this prediction, Peter is the one who speaks up. He's the spokesperson, right? He's the one that has something to say. And he boldly asserts his own personal conviction that even if all the others, even if all these other guys, Lord, even if they fall away from you, I never will. With passion, he wants to remain loyal to Christ regardless of the circumstances. The very thought of denying Jesus at this point in Peter's mind, I'm sure, was the furthest thing for him. Peter assumes all is well, but in his self-confidence, he takes the first step forward towards his fall. And this serves as a powerful warning to us. Biblical scholar Alfred, Alfred Eldersham observes, the thing we least anticipate are our falls. The things we least anticipate are our falls. It's a good quote, isn't it? We need a grander vision of the grace of God and a more realistic vision of the state of our own hearts. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? How sobering. You won't find that Bible verse on an encouragement card or a scenic poster now, will you? The beginning of Peter's sin of denying Jesus began when he disagreed with the Lord. Peter thought he was better than all the other disciples. Peter was intent on showing that he was superior. Hey, I'm the rock. I'm the one Jesus has called to, to lead you guys. You might fall away, but I won't. Listen to the pride. Listen to the arrogance. Listen to the superiority. 
Peter would have Peter would have had a different outcome if he had have accepted the prediction of Jesus, knowing that he was the Messiah, that he knew all things, and obeyed Jesus' warning. But Peter's confidence was misplaced. Peter's confidence was in himself. Peter's confidence was not in Christ. If he had confidence in Christ, he would have accepted what Jesus said. Peter is usually the one we immediately think of denying Jesus. But all of the disciples fled and disowned him too. And we have no reason to believe that ten of the other disciples did not likewise deny their Lord. However, the fact that Peter, the leader, the spokesman, the one who was so adamant that if even all the others forsook him, he never would, demonstrates how easily and how readily pride and arrogance can present itself, even if failed through well-meaning intentions. If there is one thing I want you to take away from this text today, if there is one thing that I've learnt this week by looking at Matthew 26, 31 to 35, it is this. We are far more fallible than we care to admit. And God is far more gracious than we can ever imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to have a realistic and reasonable view of ourselves and an awesome view of you. Father, we can see through the life of Peter how easy it is to misplace our confidence in ourselves. The Lord, we recognise and acknowledge as your word says in Jeremiah, that there is nothing that is inherently good within us apart from you. And so, God, I pray that we might be a people who could wholly depend on your love and your grace extended to each of us, poured out at Calvary by your Son. Our hope, Lord, is not in ourselves. Our hope is is in you. Father, I pray that you would deal with whatever arrogance and pride resides in each of our hearts. Humble us, Lord. Convict us by your Holy Spirit to be a repentant people, to be a people who are far more familiar with our knees than our feet before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.